This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Furminger, and today I am delighted to welcome filmmaker Carl Basai to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Carl's latest is in, oh, I got some big thumbs up. No one gets to see that because we're an audio podcast, but insert thumbs up here. Okay, so Carl's latest is In Her City, which screens in December as part of the 2020 Whistler Film Festival. In Her City presents the stories of 17 women in their 20s in Los Angeles, New York, and Toronto. Every story, like all good stories, contains some kind of dynamic tension. But what those tensions are and how they are told and how they make you feel are as varied as human DNA. I'm talking identity, love, race, technology, passion, alienation, longing, mental illness, and the gulfs that exist between generations. And why are women drawn to cities? And what are we looking for? What are bad reasons and good reasons? When can we say finally that we're home, not just in the city, but in our own skin? Every person's experience of their city is different, and how each story is told is different. And yet the fact that these women are all striving to live their truths is a thread that binds in her city into one singular, deeply moving, charming, and dare I say, I dare, I dare, I dare say, wildly entertaining cinematic journey. I'm not arguing that this film contains all of the answers to our existential questions, but it will show that no two lives are the same and that we're all going through something. So, but today, I am delighted that I get to throw all of my existential questions at Carl Vasai. Carl, hi. <laughs> Welcome to the YBR Screen Scene Podcast. It was such a wonderful way of talking about the movie. I have to say, it's, it's a beautiful description of the movie. And I think it's interesting just for me to say to you, just because give you the sort of sense of why I wanted to make the movie or what the, the purpose was or the background behind it. That was my um, first question. <laughs> well, so I have a 13-year-old daughter, and, you know, she just started high school this year. Her name's Evie, and she's just a great kid. Uh, but, you know, watching her become a teenager, watching her with her friends, seeing the the movement into social media, the way in which peers influence one, uh, you know, a young woman. I, I, it's just new to me because mm-hmm. I've always been a, a parent of boys and I come from a family of boys. We're sort of a generational boy family. Right. And so this daughter is kind of new territory. So I found myself being intrigued, being interested. And rather than try to, because it, it I thought at first, well, maybe what I'll try to do is explore this actual young, young group, you know, but it's, it's tricky because you're talking to young kids, early teenagers, it's difficult. You've got parents to deal with. There's just, it's a little bit of a, oh, it, it seemed like an arduous concept in a way. And then I, I thought a little deeper about it. And I thought, well, why, why don't I try to reach 
into that kind of moment in time when people are just becoming adults. They're just starting really their life out on their own. They're really setting out to define themselves. And for me, you know, the 20s, that's what it was, right? In your 20s, you're trying to figure out who you are, what you have to say, where you're going. Can I just interject before I continue to say that for me, my 20s were so much harder than I thought that they were going to be. I had what I can only describe as the, I mean, I hope I live to at least 100, but the quarter life crisis. That's when I had my first experiences with depression and with panic attacks and with this idea that like no one told me that I, like I was always working towards this idea that I'm going to, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to go to university and then I'm out in the world and then I'm going to finally be living it. And it's so it was so hard. It was so, it was so much more challenging and devastating. And, um, a lot of it were, I think just the way that I had been talking to myself about what I'd expected to feel about, about being in my twenties. So I think that watching this now that I'm now hashtag 40 AF, uh, which is a hashtag I'm also trying to make happen 40 AF. Um, but looking back now with the distance of the last couple of decades, I'm like, wow, like this is, I should have cut myself a break at this time. And it's actually a really universal experience that the 20s can be so challenging for so many people. I mean, well said, you know, uh, the, 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 the simplicity of my idea, though, originally was to try to find a couple of stories, a couple of characters, you know, maybe even one. I was thinking at first, even if I can just find one interesting young actor to try to, work with to write a story, write a script, and, and really kind of try to drill down into this experience. So I, I started casting around, fishing about, and um, I, I have good relationships in lots of different places, and I started picking on casting directors that I knew, and, you know, who do you know who's young, like kind of in the early 20s zone, who's, you know, up and coming, is thoughtful, uh, you know, it might be. So, so I was getting, setting up these meetings. Mm-hmm. They were really just fishing expedition. I went to LA, I went to New York, I went to Toronto. I had all these meetings with all these people. And the young women would come in like it was a casting session and almost be, there was no script. So they didn't have any sides or anything to formally audition with, but it was this sort of vibe of it being an audition. And I, I really tried to convince them that this wasn't an audition. It was just me uh, exploring. Let's just sit and talk, you know, turn the lights off turn the recorder off, turn, you know, everything, just make it normal, like a, like a meeting. But it was all done in a way that I didn't want to feel like a creepy older man, you know, trying to meet young women, you know, because there are movies about that, you know, it's crazy. So I, I had these meetings and, and over the course of these meetings, I realized that each person, each and every person, I mean, without exception, everyone had something going on something that was bothering them, something that was intriguing, interesting. Very few were sort of feeling like, oh, this, I don't know what to do with this person. I mean, literally every person I talked to had just something to say about Mm. themselves and about their thoughts, interests, whatever. And I thought, well, I can't treat this like an exercise in sort of picking. What I think I need to do is just expand the concept. So I went really big. And in fact, in the, in the beginning, I was working in a, a European city as well. I had a bunch of young women in Berlin as well, because I have oh. a whole Berlin life that I, I love working there. And I, I, love, I love Germany. And I've been 
you know, just building relationships there. So anyway, uh, and then I, I, I started, I started going into more detail and I realized it's too many to handle. I felt like I just had a lot of balls in the air. So I stopped with the group and I went group in LA, group in New York, group in Toronto. And then for three months, I just having met the people live, uh, and agreed upon the kind of concept a little bit, which is very loose. I, I spent three months just having these conversations like we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't even use Zoom because Zoom kind of wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, it wasn't a thing yet. So you were what, FaceTiming and Skyping? Yeah, FaceTime and Skype. And yeah. I would run actually a recorder on the side just to kind of record my own, you know, conversation just for reference. And it was actually my recorders, a Zoom recorder, which is the same company that makes Yes, Zoom. we have a we have a Zoom a yeah. Zoom mic for other things as well. I was the only Zoom connect in this, but so after so every every week I'd have five Five or six of these, you know, kind of one-hour conversations with the, the different people in the group, and it would go on and on and on. And and you know, it was really simple. It was just like, let's just talk. Let me ask you questions. Let me try to understand what kind of life you have. You know, what's your relationship like with your family? How do you, you know, just what's coming out? And there was constant conversation around anxiety. Anxiety was a thing, man. Another consistent theme was uh, issues around social media. I mean, these just became kind of topics that I was interested in seeing what their take on it was. I mean, I'm really not the generation for for social media at all. It's not even something I'm very, I understand very well. So I, I, I found it just amazing. Um, race. Uh, gender, I mean, big topics, I mean, big topics. I mean, these are, these are on, you know, front and center on everyone's mind. Um, And I really, really, really wanted to be sure that what I was doing uh, wasn't a a story where a man who is, you know, standing above as a, as a film director, telling these people what their story was going to be. I wanted to make the whole thing be, a collaboration. It had to be a collaboration. So, right. It felt the- like it felt, I'm sorry for interjecting again, but I had a question that was, um, I wanted to ask if I would be correct in describing the film as a series of collaborations, yeah, you know, I mean, because, because, it, no because of everybody, there were so many distinctive voices, you know, I wasn't yeah. like, Oh, this is Carl's voice. And you know, he's, you know, or his lens oh, or whatever. I mean, this is, it was so much like a documentary in that sense. I mean, we, every story is fiction. It's yeah. fiction, but it's fiction that's born out of individual lives and individual experiences. So no characters telling you a fictional story about something that she doesn't feel a connection to mm. or an anxiety about or a kind of a, an affinity for, you know. So uh, getting each uh, young woman to be my partner my collaborator, I mean, I, I call them all writers in the sense that there is no script, everything was improvised, but together out of our long kind of Zoom style conversations, we enacted a kind of synopsis, a sort of story outline together, which I physically wrote back and forth with each of the characters. Yeah. So we shared that back and forth. I'm like, how do we feel about this? Well, more of this, less of that. We sort of arrived at a story summary and then all I did was plan. You know, I just planned. So it's like, okay, your story needs the best friend. Your story needs the Cantonese grandma. Your story needs the mom who, you know, wants you to get married, whatever. So, and, and half the time, more I think than half the time, each uh, young actor uh, had great ideas and great intel about who would be best to play 
their mom, their friend, their boyfriend. I mean, they, they, they did all this amazing lifting because it was their world. And that, that, was, that was right for me. Like I didn't want to tell them who, right down to the girl, uh, Ruby, who throws the, the Taekwondo moves, that guy she's hawking is her buddy who happens to be an ex-college uh, and NFL football uh, running back. You yeah. know, 240 pounds of solid muscle, and she's barely 110 pounds of, you know, drink of water, and she's hucking this guy around. I mean, it was awesome, you know, to be able to kind of be a witness as a filmmaker, less of a, less of a, a director, more of an observer. It, yeah. That's the documentary for me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, though, that the, the kind of the seed of this idea, you know, began with uh, trying to understand Evie's world. Um, yeah. Do you, like, after, after the experience of collaborating with these women, with making this film, with, with, with you know, learn, observing all of these stories, has this changed at all? How you were either, you know, help Evie navigate her teen years or, you know, how you will, you know, um, respond, you know, to like if, she's, if you see little twinges of anxiety about things or, you know, how has this changed you as a parent? I think it's made me more respectful of her voice and her opinions and her mindset and a little more trusting. I mean, she's 13. So at 13, you could, you could really try to control a kid. That's sort of always felt like a dangerous age for a young woman. Oh, 13. Wow. Watch it. Watch it. You know, yeah. in this case, I mean, and she's a, she's an exceptionally organized child. You know, she's not wild. She's very like, has it going on. She's very, has it very together. She's kind of like her mother, you know, her mother's a, a television producer. So her mother has this very like analytical mind. And Evie's got a lot of that. She's, she helps me on uh, other things that I've been shooting more recently. She's been helping me in the background, you know, just organizing stuff. I mean, it's kind of amazing, you know, but that, but that, that respect really, uh, you know, that comes from just really drilling down into what it is that is going on in these hearts and minds and how people are thinking and, and what it is to be a young woman. Um, I mean, and, and it's changed my attitudes a little bit. Attitudes I didn't think I even had. You know, I think there's a lot of men who would say that. It's like, oh, I'm not sexist or I don't have that. I don't make these generalizations. But, you know, I, I grew up in the in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, it's 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 decades of you know, generational thinking about the role that men play in society and the role that women play in society. So, you know, we're, we're trying to change that. And we can't just pay lip service to the generalities. we got to actually make the change. And that starts uh, with parenting, really. Absolutely, yeah. it does. Um, can I can I make us, like, put in my wish list for the future? Because I also, yeah. I know that this was film before COVID. Um, and I know it was totally a lot of work, but I, I, you mentioned Berlin and I, I love that with the choosing the, you know, Toronto, New York, LA, we get a real like North American perspective on, on, you know, women and, and that particular decades of their lives. But I want two more movies. I want one that is set in Europe where we get to hear European voices. Uh, and then I want Actually, I want lots more, but I want one for Asia, you know, as well. And then yeah. you can you can go all over. Frankly, we shouldn't just limit ourselves. But like, it just you seems are. like the possibilities are endless because there are You're so right. many. People. And the and the and the cultural uh, the cultural differences are uh, very relevant. They're yeah. very relevant, and I haven't gotten very far with the research in in Asian countries, but certainly that's a great idea. 
I could hook. I could hook you up with. Uh, I, I I know some people. Oh, I take it. I take it. I just say, look, it's a really interesting. I do. I do plan. I am planning a Euro uh, three city version. I think that would be interesting. I haven't figured out all the cities, but certainly I do want to follow through on my Berlin plans because yeah. uh, what I noticed, and I had five interesting young women, different you know, different ethnicities, different kind of social backgrounds. But there was a, 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 I felt, really interesting distinction that came from the fact that uh, education, including post-secondary education in Germany, is free. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that going to university, uh, being um, almost gratuitously a student of ideas, less of what job can I get, uh, it makes an enormous difference in the kinds of questions that young people are asking. I mean, there is a commercialization and a kind of free market hustle to everyone. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the American women, I mean, had this in spades, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but in the German, uh, there was a, the German women, uh, incredibly, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of, thoughtfulness and a maturity that comes from just lack of fear around paying for your education and what it means. Parents don't uh, fret about kids going to university to study politics or whatever because yeah. they're not, they're just not as stressed about it. Whereas in the United States, your kid wants to go to drama school. Are you kidding me? Like, are you nuts? You know, yeah. you're a lawyer, you know? Yeah. Lawyer. <laughs> or you remember that African story that, the, the woman, the mom, like, you know, look, you're going to be a doctor, uh, yeah. by, by, you know. And, and yeah, you're talking about the story in, in, uh, in her city. And actually, so I really responded to, um, like to that story in particular, to, uh, to Michelle's story where she sees her grandmother, you know, knowing that a lot of us, you know, from the, from the diaspora, we have immigrant parents. Right. And so, you know, and then there, there's that, um, I, I use the words dynamic tension, but you know, you have your, your parents have a totally different idea, you know, of, of, and because they come from a different place and they came here with a different idea, expectations about what your life should be like. And, uh, and then you're kind of pushing up against that. So I think it would be really, I think that's why it really touched me. I mean, we haven't actually touched on, so we talked about the getting ready to film, uh, but then I want to hear about the, uh, the experience of actually making this film like to where you're like was it was it a, a question of okay so this is like the week and a half i'm going to new york so i'm going to film everything there and then do it kind of almost like a feature a film week. style because it is a feature film but it's also a series of so many stories right in each city so just just a week in each city so i did all the prep from vancouver so i would basically be on the phone or on the computer setting up my what theater to shoot in, uh, insurance, money, all the bullshit that goes into kind of prep, I did mm -hmm. remotely. And then I would show up. Uh, I had, I did, I had all my kind of crew, kind of crew, I say kind of crew, because the crew was very small, and, and equipment would travel with me. And then I would pick up a, like a production coordinator manager assistant person in each city so mm -hmm. that there was someone there on the ground who had and it was always a woman and it was always someone who had just thoughts and connections to the generation we were talking about so i didn't want it to be i wanted that i thought that was really important so 
So the, the, the process of filming was very pre-organized outside. Then once I got to that city, I would be, now I know LA really well. So uh, that was pretty easy to organize remotely because I know the, the logistics, how long it takes to get places, how, where I can, you know, steal this shot and steal that shot, where it's a little more contentious. And you got to remember we're filming with such lo-fi, uh, low-presence equipment that it's really easy to go anywhere, yeah. you know. But I, I did have a studio in L.A. because there, there were just too many little bits and pieces, and I felt like, you know, I'll spend a little money on this studio and then I can just kind of have people arrive and I spend one full day kind of knocking out these various pieces. So there's a studio that kind of recurs in a few of those LA pieces. New York was completely, um, New York was a kind of mystery. Like I know New York, you know, we've all, I think a lot of people, a lot of us have been to New York, but I, I haven't done a ton of filming there. And again, I had this friend who was my production, you know, coordinator there, but also had been part of the casting in New York. New York was cast a, a mix of an LA casting director and, uh, and a New York casting director. And the, the New York casting director also was, is a friend of mine. So she helped me on the day and she's very good at logistics and getting kind of maneuvering around New York. And she had a, a car and was a great driver, you know, so so it was the first time I've been to New York where someone just kind of drives me around, you know, I'm used mm -hmm. to taking subways, whatever. And it was, it was kind of awesome. What I loved about New York was it's such a crazy city and this is pre pandemic, right? Everyone's out, everything's nuts. Everyone's going everywhere and no one gives a shit. Uh, that you're out there filming something. You just don't care. There's I love so New York. Can we just, I, I, I want to say like I, watching this film, one, it totally satisfied the need that I have to travel, which I'm not doing right now. But I was like, I'm going, and I'm like going, I'm going back to Toronto because I spent my teen years in Toronto and oh, LA. But then New York, like, it just, it, like, I think that's the city. I haven't been there in so long, but I miss it. Like, I really desperately need to get there because the people don't give a shit. You can be on the, you can be on the subway doing your filming. You can, and like, I feel as somebody who is constantly scared all the time that of, of just danger and live with anxiety. I have PTSD. I, I'm worried about violence. I actually feel super duper safe in New York because of the fact that like, it's everybody is just so like accepting of people living their own lives, you know? So stealing shots there must be confidence and a, and a, and a brazenness to, I, I mean, look, look, New York was kind of a bit of a mystery uh, chapter. So we finished LA, we go to New York and then we were trying to figure, like I had all my kind of, you know, pre-planning done, but the pre-planning had lots of holes in it. You know, so one of the big holes in New York was I didn't really know who is going to play the friend of Michelle. Michelle's the Cantonese uh, young woman who is, you know, going to see her grandma, or thinking about her identity and her relationship to her grandmother. So two things about that story. Number one, I mean, I didn't have a ton of, of really uh, meaty ideas about how that was going to play out because I just don't know the city that well. So what's mm -hmm. Chinatown going to be like? Who is going to play the Cantonese grandma? Because uh, Cantonese is not that common. It's not as common as you think. It's, mm -hmm. you know, Mandarin. There's lots of older Mandarin actors, but it's trickier to find Cantonese. And, and I was kind of interested in real people too. Like if I could 
find non-actors, I would go for it if I could do that. But I mean, in this at this point, I had no idea. So I didn't know who was going to play the grandma. And I didn't know who was going to play the friend, right? And so my casting director... So nerve-wracking. Her name is Annie, the, the casting director, who's also you know, helping me with all the logistics. So she books uh, this young woman named Zoe Oliver, who, who plays Frances in the, mm. in the movie. So Zoe shows up. I mean, I literally had no pre-time with Zoe at all. Didn't know her at all. And, uh, and, and all my conversations had been with, um, you know, with, with Stephanie, who plays Michelle. Yeah. So uh, here comes the Zoe character, and she's so confident. And she's like, I think in, in real life, she's maybe 20. And she's really not acted much, I don't think. And she's so what? confident. Yeah. She's so confident, and she's so funny. And her and, and, and Stephanie, who plays Michelle, they wanted to be Francis and Michelle because of the movie Francis Ha, which started as a joke because Francis Ha, you know this movie, Francis Ha? I, I have heard, I have heard Greta of it, but Gerwig. please tell the listeners. Francis Ha is a Greta Gerwig film. It's about two New York kind of hipsters who sit around in apartments and kind of are clever and bitch and talk about boys and just, it's, it's, it's a generational thing. It's mm-hmm. not for me. I am not the audience for Francis Ha. I hated Francis Ha. So I was going off <laughs> in, this, in this, you know, we were talking to get sort of figure out what we're going to do. And I'm just going off on Francis Ha for some reason. I, I was just like, had this kind of rant going. And Zoe was so cheeky. She was just like, well, I loved Francis Ha. And I'm, I'm going <laughs> to name my character Francis. You know, it was all about... So these two went at it like the girls in Francis Ha. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they just had this immediate kind of chemistry. It was so funny. You know, sometimes people do, right? And you've watched the, the, the film. The, the, those two characters seem like they've been buddies forever. And uh, Zoe was so good. After the first day uh, with, with Stephanie, I just said, hey, uh, let's do a whole story with you. And then we'll flip. So that, that, you know, your buddy, who we've already met from this other story, gets to drop in back into your story. And, and, and you know, they were just constantly joking about, you know, no, what, you know, no white uh, boys 2020. You know, it's just like, so, it, so we, we found that it would be cheeky and fun to have this story be about this meeting she gets, she has and how she ends up meeting this white guy. It's just like she can't ever go out with a white guy. So I thought that was great. And yeah, it was all just the the magic of meeting interesting people and being uh, with their help fast enough on our feet to kind of make shit up. Yeah. And you can't do that in normal filmmaking. You just can't. There's too many variables. There's too much money. There's too many uh, crew. There's too many um, just logistic reasons why that doesn't work. And the the magic of, I mean, it's like I'm trying to steal from the documentary process and employ it in the pursuit of fiction. And the reason why someone asked me once, well, why not just do a documentary? I believe that fiction gives you and the actors the license to push into sometimes uncomfortable territory in ways that documentarians do as well. But documentarians are sometimes a little abusive to their subjects who become kind of almost the victims of this line of questioning or whatever it is. I always feel a little uncomfortable about that. So 
With drama, there's a pact that actors and directors share an understanding that this is make-believe, but let's make it good and let's drill down into this discomfort or into this anxiety or whatever it is. And let's, let's make it a story because it's a story people will relate to. Yeah. I, I absolutely related to this, even though I'm, I'm an old head compared to the, the women in this, yeah. in this film. Um, but, you know, I mean, we talked about how, how the film potentially changed you as a parent. But what about as a filmmaker? Because you are, you're, you're talking a little bit about what even sounds like disrupting the process of how things, how, how feature films are made, how stories are yeah. told. How do you think this will change you as a filmmaker moving forward? I think it's a great question uh, because it has changed me. It has. Now, I mean, I've made some bigger movies for sure. I've been on fairly big sets. Not the greatest, biggest Hollywood blockbuster as a director, I mean. But I've been, you know, I've been, well, I've had my share of trucks and, you know, cranes and whatever. Uh, what I would say is that all of that stuff, as validating as it is sometimes, you know, the, the, the feeling that your film is being supported by this kind of monstrous amount of equipment and personnel and machinery and logistics, you know, it feels good. It strokes your ego. It makes you feel like what you are trying to say matters in some way. Mm. But what I do feel in comparison is that uh, all that shit gets in the way of the truth. It's not supposed to, but it kind of does. And I think that the really, really great filmmakers, of which there are many, have a way of pushing through the, the barriers that this infrastructure can sometimes create. They can push through and find the truth anyway. But for those of us without maybe those skills, or maybe just haven't refined those skills enough, there's something so wonderful about just paring it all away so that the only thing that matters is to me the only thing that matters when I make a movie now, the only thing that matters is, is this, does this that I've just shot represent how this character would really behave in real life? That's all I care about. And if that person in their performance is feeling like they're acting or behaving in a way that's not believable, I, I don't know, I don't buy it, then I want to do something else, you know? And now, that's not to say that there isn't a legitimate space for filmmaking that is escapist and just entertaining. I mean, I get all that stuff, and I, and I enjoy it too. But in my work, I'm interested in finding true moments, true experience. And I'll, I'll tell you how this has affected me. So in June, July this year, uh, we started a, another film. And I took... Uh, a couple of women, I mean, it was also dealing with the virus now. So, you know, the bubbles, the need to really like figure this out logistically is very tricky because it was just when the government said, yeah, it's okay to start going back to work. Uh, we did a little movie um, where I, I co-wrote it with the main actor. It's a fiction. It's beginning, middle, end. It's not episodic like this, but it's a, it's a film about an African woman and her mother and her daughter, who's living in Vancouver, and just it's just like, this is the experience that this refugee woman has living in the city in this moment in time, period. And all the shit that happens to her and who she meets and where she lives and her apartment. And, and I, I loved making this movie. 
and I'm still editing it. It's taking me a long time to edit because I'm editing myself and I'm so terrible editor. But it's so beautiful to see. Now I have an actor who plays the mother who is just, she's the aunt of the actual actor. The kid who plays the kid is the actual kid of the main character. These are, these are a family. It's a family, you know, yeah. real people. Yeah, they've done some acting. Yeah, they're acting. Yeah, they're not playing themselves. This, these are characters. This is fiction. But they are drawing so closely on their real lives and real experiences. And I've tried to empower them to improvise, to make the story as close to their own ideas and experiences as possible. That when they speak, the acting's gone. There's no acting there. It's yeah. just honest, you know. And, and the, the woman who plays the mom, she does all her stuff. Like, so, you know, me and the actor, the main character's real name is Rumbi. So Rumbi and I, and Rumbi's actually um, one of the producers in In Her City, and this is how I know her, and she, she plays a supporting role in the story of the girl who goes for the photos in Toronto, the photo shoot. Right. Who's convincing her that everyone's taking their clothes off and la, la, la. So this same woman, who's a wonderful actor in her own right, who plays kind of an evil character in that scene, is my main character in this new film. And, and the, the things that we did on In Her City, that kind of uh, not being afraid to forget the script and let stuff happen and see if it's any good. And if it's not, keep pushing down the truth road. You know, that experience really informed this now scripted fiction movie. And I'm really excited to show it to people because it's, man, there's no bells and whistles, but it's, it's just all about like really great, honest performances by really great, honest people. And it's mm. of the moment, man. It's great. Well, great. I, I'm very excited to see that. So, uh, you know, whenever you get your edit done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it over. I'm constantly looking for stuff to watch. Um, you mentioned the pandemic, uh, of which we are. I mean, I'm in my kitchen. You know, yeah. you're, you're got the Aurora Borealis behind you. So you're clearly like living your best life, uh, you know, during the pandemic. But, you know, you are. I mean, this film is, is being introduced and getting on the film festival circuit, you know, during a global pandemic. Um, yeah. What impact uh, do you think that this will have on people's discovery of the film or enjoyment of the film? Well, I mean, I certainly am bummed out that we can't physically attend a lot of festivals in the next little while. That's too bad, you know, but uh, what is interesting, we had a Q&A, which was recorded for the Whistler screenings of the movie, um, and 10 of the women are on the Zoom call, uh, and 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 the lovely uh, woman Nikki Segovia, who's doing the, the you know the, the moderating, is asking everyone questions. It was so fantastic to just see a screen where ten of the people that you've just seen, you know, it's more than half of the characters in the movie are there in real life, and they're they're talking really intimately and thoughtfully about their process, who they are, why they're interested in the story. It's so great. And having that kind of access and fluidity, I don't think we had that before. So we're in a kind of era of streaming, let's be honest. You know, everyone's taking in media through um, streaming services that uh, it's a natural evolution that festivals would at least partly uh, take their programs and make them available this way. I think 
the, the, the weird upside is that you have, uh, like I could never get that many of them to Whistler or to Toronto or to wherever, you know, mm-hmm. so it's fun to, to be able to, to, to see what's good about it. Um, Cause that's ultimately how most people will see this movie. And also the streaming is a kind of equalizer. Like to be blunt, my film is made for, you know, uh, chump change, you know, and it can play on a screen and you won't really spend a lot of time judging it because it doesn't look like the crown or the queen's gambit or whatever. You, you'll, you'll just watch it because nowadays, you know, a, 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 a little you know, Instagram video or a little YouTube video is just as legit as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a movie movie. And, yeah. you know, so it just puts into question the whole nature of the medium and I think these are good questions and, you know, we just have to kind of keep rolling with it. Yeah. Um, Let's end with, with hope. (laughs) It's a good place to end. How how would you hope people feel? How would you like people to feel? I should say at the, at the end of in her city, you know, if you, if you could plant like, you know, like one kind of feeling um, or thought for people to carry with them, in their bones, you know, long after credits have rolled on In Her City, what would that be? Well, I mean, it's maybe just not strong enough or maybe it sounds cliche, but I think that we have to see people for who they really are, that we are all women and men. We are all uh, vulnerable. Uh, we all have good days and bad days. And my partner, Rumbi, who, who was on the Q&A for the movie, uh, said this wonderful thing where it's like behind the veil of the things we post on Instagram and our social media presence, there is this reality, which is we, you know, live these complicated lives and behind the door, you know, things maybe aren't as great and glamorous and, you know, uh, fun and beautiful and, and enticing as we hope people will see them on our Instagram feeds or whatever. And that mm. movie is a little bit of that. It's a bit, let's look behind the curtain and understand that, that, that everyone has this kind of uh, pressure and anxiety and fear of failure and ins- uncertainty about where they're going. And this, I, I'm working on a specific topic of a generation of women, but I think this is universal. And I think that level of understanding and insight into people isn't all that common in cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, it's often, you know, it's not because everyone looks so good and their lives seem to be so perfect or if they have problems they're those big Hollywood problems you know there's something very truthful and honest about these women and uh and the world needs more of that truth and honesty I mean I have to say my whole outro right now but that's such a that's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful way of, of putting it. I almost don't want to say anything, but now I've said all these other words, so we're just going to move on. Carl Basai, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know you say that you're not all that much into the social media, but like, where can people find you, follow you, celebrate you uh, if they are on the socials or the my interwebs? Dear, my dear friend who's been helping me with so many things has educated me on some of the Instagram stuff, so she's been organizing the Raven West Films account, so it's awesome. So, so everything that has to do with this movie and the coming movie, it's the Instagram handle is at Raven West films. Okay. Uh, and it, and it's great. She posts regularly, kind of keeps people up to date on the things that we're doing. It's, it's awesome. Wonderful. Where I, I post once every, you know, four years is at Carl Bessai. 
<laughs> Once every four years, eh? I wonder where I'll have to check after to see where we are in the cycle. Like if we're a year out from another tweet or, you know, it's not that scary, Carl. I actually, I quite like Twitter. You scared, but you, you have to listen to the CBC uh, Ideas uh, Massey Lectures podcast, episode two, all about the way in which it's called the surveillance economy, and it's all about mining your data, and it's terrifying. It just makes you go, what? Scary okay, time. so you had us with hope and feeling inspired. Now you've got me terrified. We're cutting this now. All right. Thank you, Carl. And thank you to our listeners. Please like and subscribe if you are so inclined. And leave us a review. They help us find even more listeners. Now, there are a lot of ways to find us, especially if you are mining our data for the surveillance state. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me. Sabrina Furminger and it's edited by Simon Furminger special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger for technical support yes Carl we are a family business over here oh and to Dane Devilly for the original music Wire Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic dynamic film and television scene and cut This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.